Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt, Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the H2O Podcast. I am Timothy Harvey. And I am Jason Hunt. And tonight, we are discussing hard science fiction. Andy Weir, who is the author of The Martian, of course, you, if you haven't read the book, you very likely, if you're a science fiction fan, may have seen the movie, um, which, of course, got a lot of praise. The novel did as well. It's uh, his new book, uh, Project Hail Mary, is out. And uh, I just finished listening to it today. Oh, did you? I did. Okay. How is it? Um, it's quite good. It's very entertaining. And um, we can get a review. If I can get, if I can get one, <laughs> if this week lets me yeah. have one, my work, my work schedule just got a lot more complicated, but um, the, this one just um, came out here on the fourth, I think is when it, when it released. Was it, that right? It was last, you know, it was, it was, yeah, because we reported on this on, on Good Morning Multiverse, we said it was out. And it was, um, it, like, um, the Martian before it uh, takes a scientific premise, and because hard science fiction is also can be speculative fiction, you're allowed to, uh, you know, have at least something that uh, you know is potentially a flight of fancy. Alien contact, for example, a lot of a lot of uh, hard science fiction involves how mankind might actually react. Yeah, we should probably we should probably define our term because hard science fiction for a lot of people are like, what does that mean? Right. So right. Okay. Well so one thing that you could one way to look at it, if you're familiar with the concept of the superhero movie, this is not hard science fiction. No. If you are familiar with the most comic book stories don't involve hard science fiction. In many ways they're fantasies. Um, 2001 is hard science fiction because the basic premise is that you have real or at least realistic science and the behavior of science actually behaves the way that we understand it. Real world physics. Well, okay. So man of steel and, and Batman v Superman could be hard science because, like you say, you know, uh, Zack Snyder tried to put that in the real world with physics, and and we see what happens to Metropolis in that case. And this is this is how <laughs> you, why you don't generally dump superheroes into the right. real world physics model. Uh, it's a mess. Um, but you can you can look at hard science fiction as being somebody looking at things within the realm of physics as we understand it, science as we understand it, it does take out things like transporters, warp, most kinds, qualifier, most kinds of warp drive, uh, because there are some theoretical models for warp drive that science, scientists right. have developed that you could potentially have. I think, I think interstellar from Christopher Nolan probably played in that, uh, in that sandbox a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. when, well, in terms of you know, faster than light drive and such, you know, Terminator is not hard science fiction, but um, Ex Machina is, yeah. because while you know, killer robots from the future um, takes it past. I mean, time travel. 
time travel can get really iffy because there are, so again, you come back to some theoretical models that science has developed for things like time travel. It's just how you would get it to work. Mm-hmm. Um, you need a fact, box. Yeah. yeah. Well, in fact, using uh, uh, Project Hail Mary as an example, um, the premise of the novel, and of course I'm not going to spoil the, the, the story for you, but the premise of the novel is the sun literally starts getting dimmer. 0.1%. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is, is that at 5% dimmer, we start dying. Because we're in this Goldilocks zone, right? Where, where water and all these different things for life exist. And so they're, they're, it's a temperate zone. If the temper, if the the sun diminishes its luminosity, its output by five percent, um, we start freezing, uh, and humanity therefore is a little bit at risk. And this is not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over several decades. But it's like, why is this happening? What is going on? There's another term, and I can't remember exactly because you mentioned the habitable zone, and I was thinking that there was another term. It's it that describes that sweet spot location for habitable planet distance from the sun. Isn't it the it's, it's the Goldilocks zone? Yeah. Okay. There it is. Yeah, the Goldilocks. Yeah, it's, Goldilocks. It's, it's okay. Just warm enough. Yep. Just right. Uh, but the um, and it turns out this is a natural phenomenon. There are things living in space that are essentially consuming sunlight. Um, And this is a problem because we're using that. Yeah. So humanity finds a, you know, finds a reason to not kill itself long enough to try and save humanity. Uh, And the story basically is told from the point of view of one of the astronauts who is on this mission to another star to try and find out how to save the world. Small problem, he wakes up without any memory. He knows how to do all the things he needs to know how to do, but exactly how he got there, exactly what happened to get all of this going, he doesn't remember, and his other two crewmen are dead. Not just dead, but skeletons. If I remember reading the well, reading the more description, or less, right. more or less mummies, because yeah. they they Which, died some time ago. Because the trip to this other star, it takes time. Yeah, it's not. There's no warp drive. This is like they they get close to relativistic speed, um, and I won't tell you how. The science behind that is part of the story. Um, but they, you know, it still takes time, and. Uh, we haven't developed cryogenic sleep, not really. So uh, the rather dangerous um, induced coma. A lot of people die in induced comas yeah. with a doctor leaning over you. So um, so it's there's a lot going on in this novel, and it ends up being a lot of different things. And it is an interesting take on to some degree, first contact, 
to some degree, a disaster novel, uh, a human exploration novel. Um, there's the politics of science. Um, there's a lot going on in this novel. It's really interesting. Uh, Ray Porter does the audiobook. If you're a Zack Snyder fan and recognize that name, uh, he was Dark Side in the Snyder Cut. Um, but he's an amazing audiobook uh, narrator, and he does. Uh, I have great to admit, voices. I have to admit, I have not read nor watched The Marchant. Um, I probably should at some it's good. point. I don't know. The the involvement of Matt Damon, for some reason, just kind of puts me off a little bit, and I'm not sure why. I mean, he's okay in the Born, you know, the Born movies. He's okay there, but there's I'm not. I haven't. I haven't quite put my finger on why I don't feel compelled to watch a Matt Damon movie anymore. Not and every actor appeals to everybody. Mark Mark Wahlberg is a huge star, and I don't like watching him act. Yeah. I don't know. No, it just, I mean, no, no it just doesn't appeal. Yeah. But there, and this is an example, um, if, if you've only seen the movie The Martian, I recommend reading the book or listening to the audio book because there's more there. Yeah. Because again, you could it's it's you know it's changing a several hundred page novel into a two hour movie. A lot is condensed, a lot is cut out, um, and so there's a lot more depth to things, especially in the science. Uh, because one of the things that makes Andy Weir an interesting writer for a lot of people, and a good writer, as a science fiction fan, one of the writers you should be reading, is because he does his research and. Even when he gets into the speculative side of things, he sits there and goes, okay, if A and B that we know are combined to get us a C that we don't know, yeah. based on A and B, what is C likely to work like? And then if he gets that, he sits there and goes, okay, now let's make the math work <laughs> or as much as I can, um, which, is, which is really fantastic because one of the things that really interesting hard science fiction can do is not only tell a good story, but excite people about science. And quite frankly, there's nothing wrong with being excited about cool science stuff. There's all kinds of cool science stuff all the time. Some of it's a little scary, you know, mixing genes, um, <laughs> like recent stories. It's like, did Dr. Moreau teach us nothing? <laughs> I don't know. M Mindy mixes our genes all the time. They come out just fine. But do you put in <laughs> items of red clothing? Uh, actually, it depends on the temperature of the water. Yeah. Really, you know, you don't get so much bleed. But I mean, there's. There's some really, really cool, um, exciting bits of science that if you're a science fiction fan, you may not know on the science end. And hard science fiction is an opportunity for people to get exposed to that. Well, and anything, to, uh, crazy, you might learn something. Yeah, and, well, and, and to go back to Heinlein's Juveniles, 
You know, Ooh, you go mm-hmm. back that far. I mean, he he used a lot of what was the known science plus some speculative stuff to give us things like Space Cadet and Rocket mm-hmm. Ship Galileo and all of those things to to do that that very thing where he's he's trying to generate an interest in science and rocketry and and space exploration and and all that good stuff and and got quite a few people involved in and in interested in that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And those books still hold up all of this time later. Yeah, and even even though the science in some cases has marched on beyond what we understood at the time, yeah. the stories still hold up. And you can find that with Asimov too and and you know you'll you'll find that people who might complain that Asimov's characters are fairly thin, um, Asimov's focus was on the science. Uh, but he, you know, he still wrote strong enough characters to make them, you know, engaging and interesting. They just don't necessarily have the depth of some other writers, but there was so much interesting science in Asimov. A lot of times you forget that the character essentially this is square jawed science guy. This is, you know, yeah. I mean, there's a certain well, amount of that in Asimov. There's a reason why Asimov was a, was a consultant on the first Star Trek movie. You know, he's, he's been, yeah. he's been involved in a number of different productions as a, as a science consultant to, to try to get that kind of thing right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you look at some of these folks, I mean, you, know, you mentioned Heinlein's juveniles, but the moon is a harsh mistress mm. is for its time a very, uh, you know, uh, solid imagining of what it would be like to have a moon colony. You look at Larry Niven and, and Jerry Pornell's um, uh, Footfall, or yeah. you look at uh, the Dream Park books, the Niven's Dream Park books, which is in many ways, you know, it, it, the technology very quickly became out of date yeah. from the first book. But so much of that was, you know, it, virtual reality. Uh, uh, you know, you look at something like The Mandalorian that has all these different backgrounds that are digitally projected. Mm-hmm. Just imagine what kind of theme park you could build with that technology. Oh, oh that, you can bet that they're thinking about that already. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there was I – for, I had forgotten this, and I, I, uh, I was reminded of it uh, last week that there were a group of Niven fans who actually tried to get a dream park off the ground. And they couldn't, again, they ran into the problems of, of, of money and technology, where mm-hmm. the technology was. And so it, the project went bankrupt, unfortunately. But, you know, so much of this stuff is, is um, speculation off real existing technology or stuff that seems like it's right around the corner. Uh, that you can actually build some really dramatic stories out of. I had a book. I've I've got a book somewhere. Well, I've got several books somewhere, but I've got a particular book. You mentioned the the amusement park thing, and I I don't know if it's Niven. I want to say that Frederick Pohl wrote it. Um, for the life of me, I can't tell you where it is right now. It's probably on that shelf back there in the back, but it's something along those lines. The amusement park attraction type of thing. Um, well, there are four books, I think, in the Dream Park book in series. Yeah. Um, the second one is the Barsoom Project, which, interestingly enough, that's, I paused that's listening to. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, because the, the, the new uh, uh, Andy Weir book came out, and I'm like, oh, I'll come back to this. <laughs> I, think I, I, I think I have the Barsoom Project. I think that's the one. Because I think he wrote it with 
with Niven, didn't he? Um, so Niven, I want to say it was Niven and Pornell, or maybe it was a Niven and Barnes. Uh, that's a good question. Now we get, see folks, now we go to the internet. Uh, Stephen Barnes. He wrote those with Stephen Barnes. Okay. Um, but yeah, there, and even, even though the technology again has marched on, they're still very entertaining stories because it takes the idea of role-playing games, which, you know, this was not, this was the idea that you have live action role-playing games was when they first, the series first came out, it wasn't necessarily like, you know, as, as popular as it has become. Mm -hmm. So again, there are a whole lot of things that were ahead of the time. Um, but you know, you can look at something like. Would um, you would you consider Ready Player One an extrapolation of that sort of thing? Because you're looking at virtual reality, full immersive. Uh, you know, you put on the haptic suit and you put on the helmet and the VR gear and all of that, and you're inside this world. On on the one hand, if you look at it through one squinty eye, it's fantasy. But if you look at it through the other squinty eye, we're not that far off from virtual reality. So would you would you think maybe it's kind of skating the line between not necessarily hard science fiction, but a harder, a rea harder realistic, harder scale, realistic ish yeah. speculative fiction, maybe? Maybe it's maybe it's just kind of not quite hard science fiction because the technology's not there yet, but in 10 years, um, maybe? I, 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 the part that actually makes it skate closer to hard science fiction for me is the technology. The part that keeps me away from it is I have a hard time getting my head around parts of how that world works. Yeah. Because it sort of, and, and I know this is going to come as a surprise because this is a big discussion out in the world, of course, but the idea that there is one place that everybody goes mm. um, just doesn't hold up for me because while the discussion, of course, is, is you know breaking up the large social media sites like, like Facebook and things like that, the fact is their websites on the internet and the internet is gigantic. Right. These are individual places. So the idea that there would be one website that everybody goes to, well, is there's, just, I mean, there's, uh, it's, it's probably you could look at it as the VR equivalent of Google. That maybe, no. maybe there are other VR destinations in this in this universe in this world, but potentially there's one that dominates, and it's Google. I, you know, yeah, it's, I mean, it's it, the Google it, it, that's, that's that's possible, but it's also built on one personality being behind driving that. And I know, again, you can argue you've got your Elon Musk Elon and Musk, you've got all these Bill other Gates. people who, but at the same time, it just it doesn't feel you know, the way the way I the way that I see the world working. It doesn't <laughs> quite fly for me. The world because doesn't I know work there, the way you see it working. Well, but there are too many. There are too many people who have that level of 
money and power mm-hmm. in the world. There are too many, you know, people who could potentially be that. that you know, it feels like that kind of world would really, really push competition in in developing it. Well, but, it, well you except know, again, except you look at uh, Oculus, for example. You know, you have Oculus. It gets up to a certain point. Facebook chews it up and eats it. You know, sure. you have you have all of this acquisition. You know, Google buys YouTube. Google buys this. Google buys that. Alphabet buys this. Amazon buys this, that, and the other. So now you have two or three. Or you look at the chart of what Disney owns, for example. You know, I mean, Disney right. owns everything that Google doesn't own. I mean, own. It's, but, it's not. But you have this of consolidation of. of one company owns all of it that you could get to the point where you have this one VR space that's, you know, dominant over there. The other, the other ones would be the local cable access channel, you know, or it's lo- not local out of the access. realm of possibility. Yeah. It's not, I mean, it's, it's, you can, you can argue it definitely falls under uh, speculative fiction with a hard science fiction, Edge for the technology that everybody uses. Now, see, that would be that would be an interesting book for uh, uh, for what's his name to to come up with is the pirate channel. You know the 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 little the little <laughs> the little guys, the usurpers, the ones who are right, you yeah. know the rebels with a cause type of things. This one's too big; it needs to be broken up. Well, and also, I think that there's. Um, and, and, and this is part of why people like Ready Player One. This is part of why people don't like Ready Player One is that it is such a novel about nostalgia. Yeah. And it is, um, for all the fact that it is set in the future and it looks forward to a future, <clears throat> it's so much about looking back to the 80s. And, it's, and, and there's, nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with that kind of storytelling, but... You know, it's you can see why some people are like, I don't like this novel because they didn't grow up in the eighties. They don't have that sense of, or or they just, or they did, and they don't have that sense of nostalgia for the eighties because um, it's seeped in nostalgia. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, uh, and, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. But. And the book probably even more so than the movie because oh yeah, you know, the, no, the book's got much more in it that you know you can't get the rights to in the film. Right. Right. But I mean, I think that you look at something like uh, Andromeda Strain or Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton mm-hmm. uh, uh, built a large portion of his writing career off the ideas of harder science. Um, those are probably his two hardest science novels. Um, things like Timeline and stuff like that, you get into time travel and, yeah. and, and that sort of Who stuff. Who wrote where... Coma? Coma was Robert Cook. Okay. Was right. that... I think it was Robert Cook. Yeah, that sounds uh, right. Robin, 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 Robin Cook. Cook. There we go. Is that would you would you think coma is, is hard science? Um, is there hard science horror? I mean, would uh, uh, um, um, Event Horizon? So then you get Alien? into well, so, okay. So Event Horizon would be the harder edge of science fiction horror. Mm. If you want. Hard science fiction horror. Oddly enough, Alien yeah. might be the closest thing, or or the Europa Report, which isn't even horror, um, but it's scary. I mean, it's, it's, a it's super tense at yeah. times. 
Um, and I think it's probably, you know, it, it has the potential to be considered something kind of horror. But, but horror is more rooted in a... There's a psychological edge to horror, and it's building on your uncertain fears. Um, I'm interested to see what they do with the, the Event Horizon TV series, because you've got more time to tell the story. Yeah. Uh, in theory, this, this could be a good thing, right? Um, but you look at something like that, where at your core is a, you know, a drive that is a hyperdrive. And... Um, and then it opens the door to hell. So, you know, <laughs> like it's like it saying, you know, it's what like about, saying doom is military fiction. It's like, well, what about Apollo, yeah, what about Apollo but, 18? Apollo 18, huh? Apollo 18 could count as horror, but would that yeah, be I, hard I, science fiction? I mean, it's the Apollo program and this is the mission we never told you about. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's another one that gets pretty close to that. Um, I think that the, um, you f- are more likely to find it on the science fiction side of the line and more leaning towards science. You can have horror elements. I mean, you look at um, Sunshine um, for probably... I'm not familiar with that one. Um, Sunshine, and now I'm drawing a blank on the... Director. While, while you're looking that one up, Mrs. Boss had had asked me earlier because I was telling her about what we were going to talk about tonight, and she's she, we were we were kind of brainstorming different titles of different things, and she said, "What about Space Camp?" And I thought, just briefly for a moment, and and my answer to her was, "If you take the robot out, mm. then it could still work." And you know, hard science fiction ish because they're going through this is this is the space shuttle and the program at the time and then you know mission control and all of that. And the fact that it's the robot who makes all of this happen to me cheapens that story. And it turns it into a kid's movie. Because if you take that robot out and you just have the malfunction just happen, it's this one in a billion shot of, of, of something going wrong at the just the right time that they have to launch. That's scary. And I'm sitting there going, it was the robot? It was the robot? You know, and that, that completely takes me out of the story. There's no suspense now because, oh, it was the robot. Well, of course they're going to make it home. Well, and that's actually the problem with Sunshine. Uh, Danny Boyle was the director. Mm. It's got uh, Dylan Murphy, Chris Evans, uh, Michelle Yeoh. I've never heard um, of this movie. It's a fantastic science fiction film until it turns into a horror movie. <laughs> and it's <clears throat> like like the the Andy Weir one. It involves the sun <clears throat> going out, um, or it's it's a much faster effect and. The science gets a little hazy because you know someone didn't clearly didn't carry the zero no. uh, because uh, you cannot actually do what they. Uh, it was it was when the film came out. There were scientists who sat there and went, "Okay, I liked the movie, but you can't rekindle a star the way you say you you do it. You can't. <laughs> it's not how fit. That's not how it works." Um, but most of the film is 
treated like this is a serious science fiction where we're rooted essentially in our technology level yeah. a few years in the future. And it's, you know, it's a dangerous mission because we're not designed to live in vacuum. And so there's lots of risks. And of course, it may very well be a suicide mission because generally speaking, you know, if you say you get your star to fire up again, you're going to be awfully close to when that happens. And it's probably not a good place to do it. But it's it's a really engaging film until it changes tone. And if you don't, if you don't deal well with the whiplash of that moment, and it's a whiplash moment, oh yeah, um, you will sit there and go, "No, <laughs> takes you out." I was, I, I skated on top of it and kind of went, "Oh, what are you doing?" And then the movie ended in a way I was okay with. But there's about 15 minutes we were going, "Yeah, are you sure?" <laughs> So Robert, sure? Robert in the chat makes a joke about uh, the dystopia coming after somebody figures out on on VR versus uh, versus sex bots. But it does prompt me to ask this question: when it comes to technology and VR, because you've got you've got movies like AI, you know, Steven Spielberg and and uh, um, I just went blank on his name, Kubrick. Kubrick. Yeah, yeah, Stanley Kubrick. And you have movies like, you mentioned Ex, Ex Machina. We have Her mm-hmm. with uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix and... and uh, um, um, the Voice of Scarlett Johansson. The Voice of Scarlett Johansson. And we start to see these stories about people, you know, what is it, Carl Carl and the and the girl robot or something like that. They're, we're starting to see these stories. And I think there's a movie even coming out that's got a Japanese robot as the as the lead character. Right. Uh, so we're starting that. to see these things. And I'm actually reading a book right now. Uh, I'm reading Unfettered Journey by Gary Benger. Uh, and we we interviewed him uh, on Bunker here not too long ago, and it was a really interesting conversation because he's approaching this book is is the question of consciousness when it comes to AI, mm-hmm. and at what point can it happen? Does it happen? Is there the possibility that artificial intelligence becomes conscious? Is there is there that possibility? I personally don't think there is because, you know, it's still ones and zeros and it's only as good as the, pro, the, the baseline programming. But you still have machine learning and you have all of these different things where the machines learn themselves. I saw a video the other day of some of these robotic robots, or the robot dogs that the police, mm. police departments are yeah. using. I saw one that learned to roll over and avoid getting poked by a stick from the human and learned in the moment. So you have these, you ha- you start having these questions of it. Just how much, just how much should the machines learn? Well, it's the premise of shows like Westworld <clears throat> is mm-hmm. where is the line drawn yeah. between what is consciousness and what is programming? And if you build a smart enough robot, the Turing test, of course, the mm-hmm. great, you know, talking to talking to a machine intelligence and then not being able to tell that it's a machine intelligence. Yeah. Um, and so the question becomes, is it conscious? Well, 
you get to things like Ex Machina and you look at some of these other films, uh, Blade Runner is, in, is also in this, in this category here, where does it matter? You have now made a thing that thinks enough like a person that it, for all intents and purposes, is because we don't actually have a test for consciousness. That's true. You look at there something. is no way to prove. There's no way to prove that you are conscious or I am conscious. We are. We yeah. had that experience, but how would you know if a machine was? I there's think no it's, it's interesting test because for that, that that conversation actually happens in this book and. One of the things that they're looking at in terms of what defines consciousness is the fact that there is a recognition of I. I am having this experience. I am, am having this conversation. I'm, I'm listening and hearing and, and perceiving all of this. But also that with consciousness, you perceive value in what you're doing. So, so the, the distinction that they make, an AI can take various different pieces of information and discover the next thing, but mm. there's no aha moment. There's no realization that you've discovered this. It's just X plus Y plus Z equals three, and here's the answer to this next question. There's no, there's no eureka moment for, a, for an AI as there would be for a conscious person who recognizes that it's a discovery. But the argument you could make is that if you can reproduce everything but that aha moment... You still don't have consciousness. You have a perception where, of consciousness. But how do you measure that? Well, that's the question. Yeah, and and that gets really interesting because you get into something like a an artificial person, like in the Blade Runner universe, right? Yeah. So you have people who have basically been grown, but they're not humans. They're an artificial life form with a built, you know, they've got a built-in uh, expiration date. They're stronger than people. Yeah. They're more durable. They actually have been made. They've been designed. And so you could pull, you know, but, but they are displaying signs of what we would call consciousness. But there's nothing in the movie that actually tells you they're conscious aside from their behavior. Mm -hmm. Which could and, be programmed. Well, it could, it could be the programming is so good you know, and yeah. and this you know, this is leaving well, aside the idea, you know, any kind of religious aspect to it, where you know souls and things like that. Well, and that, if you build a machine that can replicate consciousness to the point where you can't tell the difference, it doesn't have to be conscious. Well, and it's I think that's part of it. the I think that's part of the uh, the argument too. The discussion is the the existence of the soul, because you know whether you have. Don't get in the uh, transporter. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, Mazur said, uh, yes, to answer your question, the dogs, the, the, the robotic dogs. I, I don't know if this particular unit was a Boston Dynamics robot dog, but it's along those same lines. I think it was. Um, I think they're the dog. I think they're the ones who make the the dogs we're all yeah. seeing. And and Mazur says that uh, uh, we're 30 minutes in and he still hasn't gotten a notification that we're live. So. 
Robert does ask a question here. What about Warhammer as hard science fiction? Warhammer 40K. There's two. Okay. So that's a good question. And I think it's got it in there, but there's also fantasy elements to the Warhammer series. Mm -hmm. So I think there's parts of it. And of course it's set so far in the future. Right. But there's, but there's also some interesting uh, stagnation in terms of, of what's going on in that society that is recognizable to us. So I think I mean, you could put Halo in that same category, yeah? Uh, so I think, I think that some of these things, you get into things like Halo, you get into things like um, uh, the Warhammer series, you get into these uh, series where you can, once you pull out some of the fantastic elements, Mm-hmm. like warp drives and things like that. Right. And you can do things like Star Trek this way. Um, when you pull out the fantastic elements, you're left with very human stories. Um, now, Warhammer are... Uh, it's a grim, grim series. There's very little cheerful or optimism in the Warhammer universe uh, and very few good people. But... There's so much of this really like big speculative, soft science fiction, the more mm-hmm. fantastic science fiction, has those elements that make hard science fiction work too. Because you can't just have the technology. Yeah. You have to have the human story. You look at a film like Gattaca. This right. is hard science fiction. But it's set like tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And it's... You know, the, the, it, at its core, it's all about the human story. The science around it okay. is, is hard science fiction, but the story is very human and very emotional and very relatable. Yeah. It's just set in that world, but that world is so very close to us now. You mentioned Gattaca. That brings to mind, is it the island? With... <laughs> Not hard science fiction, I would say. Oh. No. <laughs> no. Well, and, and you talk about, you know, taking out uh, taking out certain pieces. If you look at David Weber's uh, David Weber's Honor Harrington series, for example, mm-hmm. um, I would say, I mean, it's it's technically a lot of times when people talk about it, they they distinguish it as military science fiction because it's, you know, it's space navies and it's military. Right. But I would say that it's also hard science fiction, but for the fact that they have the faster than life, uh, faster than light, faster than life would be a completely different kind of story, wouldn't it? Um, but a fast, they have a faster than light drive, but it is a technology that they've, you know, done a little bit of the homework in the thing. And yes, it's a little hand wavy, but it's based on wormhole type of things kind of kind of like what you see in Babylon 5 or uh Buck Rogers having the Stargate or Stargate it's you know it's it's an artificially generated wormhole you know Deep Space Nine's got a wormhole and this theory that you can use wormholes to travel from one place in the galaxy to another while it's fantastical you know, there are some people who are really trying to figure out the physics behind something like that. Are wormholes and black holes, you know, well, look at the black hole from Disney. Well, you look at, you look at something like Stargate, 
And for all the fact that you've got, you know, ancient aliens who came down and pretended to be gods, which is Van, Von Daniken nonsense <laughs> all the way down, folks. Um, but the premise of we discover a way to travel to other worlds in our own backyard. Yeah. But the technology of humanity is not changed, right? It's a portal, but the people going through it are today. They're mm-hmm. armed with our stuff. They don't have, you know, they're, they're not, they don't have, well, I was going to say, they don't have jetpacks, but now the Royal Navy. Apparently Did you see them. that? That was so That's cool. Pretty nifty. Um, on the other hand, death from the sky. Not cool. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think that, that there's, if you strip away, and, and there have been novels like this, right? Where you basically, we discovered somehow, you know, a gateway to another, another world, another reality. And the people going through it are exactly who you would expect to go through. They're scientists and soldiers and, right. and, you know, and the first sometimes those wars. stories are very uh, rooted in hard science. Sometimes they get very, very, very fantastical. You can well, have at Stargate, a yeah, and Stargate actually had the distinction of having the support of the U.S. Air Force because right. of how they portrayed the Air Force in such a realistic manner. Mm-hmm. The Air Force sat there and said, you know, you guys get it right. So, you know. Joint Chiefs of the Staff, you know, Chief of the Air Force shows up in a guest spot a couple of times and he's playing himself. Sure. And I was like, well, sure, why not? So, but yeah, I, th- I always thought that that was, that was interesting that out of all of the different shows that have any kind of military component, you have Stargate that focuses and concentrates and tries to get right the military aspects of the Air Force let's set aside the whole wormhole thing and going to other planets thing. If the air force were to go to other planets using a wormhole, this is how they would act. And I, I thought that's, that's a level of detail that you would expect in a, in a, in a more hard science type of setting, mm-hmm. as opposed to something like Stargate, where you've got this fantastical device that takes you all over the place in the galaxy. Well, interestingly enough, the, the Stargates solve a problem that pops up in your more fantastic science fiction in that it's amazing how many Earth-like planets there are. <laughs> it's but all Vancouver. Thing. But here's the thing. If you, build, if you built a Stargate system and mankind stumbles upon it, yeah. the odds of what being on the other side being similar to our environment are pretty high. Why else would it be here? Because whoever was using it had an atmosphere, or at least ours was a survivable atmosphere for them. The odds get better that way, as opposed to, you know, every planet Jim Kirk beams down to looks like Vancouver. Well, Um, now they explain that with the preservers. Yes, it's it's called we... We, we recognize that we've hand-waved ourselves into a the, thing that people the, are paying attention the to now. preservers came down because the preservers had pyramids. They weren't as big as what was built in Egypt, but the preservers came to Earth, and they scattered, they scattered us to the four winds, as it were. This is a discussion. The discussion of how life evolves and what life 
what it mean, what what kind of where you find life is part of the new Andy Weir book. Yeah. Because of course, no one was expecting to find a life form that eats light. Uh, and that raises the question, what other kind of life is out there? And our main character is a little bit of an outcast in the, um, the scientific world because he put forth the idea that you don't need water for life. And of course, that's a, that's a major, that's a major discussion that people, you know, science has this discussion. It's an ongoing discussion. Mm -hmm. He's not, uh, there are, there are people like this character in the scientific community who sit there and say, yeah, our kind of life needs water. But there, but the idea that we are the only kind of life in a universe this big is to sit there and go, but couldn't something else use different building blocks? In which case they wouldn't need the Goldilocks zone that we need or mm-hmm. our kind of life needs. They could have a different Goldilocks zone for their kind of life. And it's an interesting question that until we encounter that kind of life, we're you know, it's all speculation. Well, you um, you have you have silicon-based life with the Horda. Or and, the Tholians. Or the Tholians. Yeah, the Tholians are a completely different kind of, of life form. So, you know, that, that kind of thing does get speculated about in, in a couple of places. And I think if you are to go with the assumption that there is life out there not on Earth, then it... Be nice. It's a really universe. Be ashamed to be lonely. Yeah, but it really isn't that much of a leap to imagine that if there's life, there would be life that's not necessarily carbon based. But I would, I would think an interesting point was raised in this in this book I'm reading now. The fact of the of how long, how long of a time it would take for humans to get anywhere to really explore, like you see in, in various different things, hundreds and hundreds of centuries. Sure. And if, if, you, if you look at it that way, <clears throat> and if you, uh, if you uh, uh, subscribe to a belief in a creator, then finding that life elsewhere would take so long so as to even be not even worth the effort. Well, it depends on how... Then you get into the motivations of your creator, which is always a dangerous thing to do. It doesn't end well in science fiction, by the way. There's a scene in Blade Runner where that whole conversation goes very, very poorly yeah. um, for the creator. So, um, but the idea, and then comes the question is, how long do your, does your creator want your species to be around? Uh, so, you know, you can actually have, uh, you know, the, and the distance is so far that the effort might be part of the goal. Yeah. Is how willing are you to throw yourself out into the into the emptiness of space to find something new of to, to to explore? You look at something like I mean, because folks, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but there's the, the closest star from us is four light years away. But getting up to any kind of speed that makes it close to four years of travel, mm-hmm. we don't have the skill to do that. We don't have the toys to do that yet. 
Um, and it's going, the amount of energy it would take to do that is lots. Yeah. Many, many lots. And so the idea that, you know, it's, you know, four light years away, four years doesn't say a four, you know, but we can't actually get up to the speed of light. Um, so it it's a lot further away. And yeah. then you factor in time dilation. Where right, because the if you're, it, relative, relativistic speeds, as you get closer to the speed of light. And, uh, and so the question, you know, just, and, and here, here's a fun thought. Imagine not figuring out relativistic speed and still launching yourself out into the stars. Mm. I mean, but the, there's, there's some really interesting stories that can be told with space exploration. And you get to going back to things like Heinlein's juveniles or, or 2001, uh, where again, you know, we discover something in our own backyard that is so clearly alien to us. Yeah. Um, and then you explore you know, where that story goes and what kind of life would look at you and go, this, this moon, this isn't yours. You can do not land on Europa. Europa, yeah. All right, let me, let let me interrupt for a moment. Robert, I'm going to give you a warning. That's enough. Uh, the 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 idea of an alien consciousness, an alien superconsciousness, like what we were talking about in in two thousand one, for example, hard science fiction. Would that? That's kind of that's kind of bobbing and weaving a little bit. I think. Do you, you, does it? Because, you know, theoretically possible, the physics of it and all that other stuff. And I suppose if we posit there's other alien life and we posit there could be other alien life that's not carbon-based, I guess you could make the leap that there's alien life that's, you know, higher form of consciousness type of thing, Organians being another example of that. Um, it's, It's a little hard for me to wrap my head around something like that, though. But you look at something like Arrival um, or, you know, okay. Contact. Well, yeah, and where the idea is, is that they've, these species have been around for a much longer period of time than we have. So yeah. they've reached a different level, whether, they, whether they've ascended, quote unquote, um, to a different plane of existence or their technology is so far behind us. Um, you look at... Uh, Oh no! A child childhood's end. Oh yeah, their technology is so far beyond us; it might as well be sorcery. Uh, which, well, of course, comes back to that. You know, is it, is it Clark or Highline that said one man's science is Clark. another man's magic? Yeah, Clark. Yeah, um, but you look at something like Arrival, where they this the way these this alien species looks at the universe is so different from ours mm-hmm. that. You actually, and, and this is what makes the movie interesting, is that you have a linguist there trying to figure out how to communicate with someone who the concepts are, are there's very little common ground. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that's in so often in first contact stories that are on the harder edge 
you see them trying to communicate with things like math. Because it doesn't matter what planet you were born on, one of these plus one of these equals two of whatever it is. Whatever base unit you're using to count, Mm -hmm. we use base 10. That doesn't mean anybody else is going to use base 10. So you have to, but, but the math, you know, however they got from point A to point B, there's math involved. Unless it's and common so that's, core. I'm sorry? But you don't want to use common core math. Well, <laughs> even if you strip it down to common core, they still have the basics down at the bottom. Um, so you can look at, and I think that that's, that makes part of what hard science fiction really work is that when you break it down for the audience, Mm-hmm. they can see how this could happen. Yeah. It's not, you know, without, without a, um, a transwarp drive or things like that. Okay, Mindy, Jurassic Park. She just dropped it in there. Okay. If then, all right, this is, this yeah. is the core of science fiction. If then, if such and such a thing happens, then here's my story, right? Mm-hmm. <sighs> Jurassic Park is a really cool idea. It's also terrifying. It is. Because you know someone would do this wrong. The, the, the most realistic aspect of Jurassic Park is that it turned into a murder field. Oh, yeah. Um, because systems fall apart. They just do. I mean, there's... Uh, the the Jeff Goldblum uh, Malcolm Chaos character theory. was was underplaying it, folks. <laughs> um, but the really cool idea here is, yeah, if you found somehow got your hand on dinosaur blood, did but here's they, the thing: didn't they just find something? Didn't they just find a, a, a oh, not necessarily mosquitoes? They didn't. Didn't they oh, find some deposits cl- in amber, and and they're trying to re- extract? They, I'm sure that I'm sure somebody, if they have somebody's trying it, I mean, there's people who are trying to clone mammoths because we actually have that may be what I was thinking about mammoth but. meat because this stuff was frozen in the permafrost and it was essentially flash frozen, so it is yeah. technically edible food. I do not recommend <laughs> eating the ancient mammoth, um, no matter how well you cook it. Uh, but the idea that potentially they could clone mammoths from this stuff now of course the in the real world we all know the cloning process isn't particularly seamless i mean if you're old enough to remember dolly well see the thing about it is though if you get mammoth and mammoth is related somewhat to modern day elephant you could cross pollinate as it were and you could use the elephants to bring back the mammoths. Right. In which but case, the frog you'd thing... get banthas. So the, the, the thing is, is that Jurassic Park is, in many ways, a hard science fiction novel because mm-hmm. the science is, at its core, pretty sound. Yeah, the well, problem is, is that you have to find the dinosaur... Not just the dinosaur blood, but enough different kinds of dinosaur blood to not just make one dinosaur. Yeah. Or or one kind of dinosaur. 
it's a conceit um, in the story. Sure, sure. But and, it has to and, be. and there's nothing wrong with that. No. Um, I think that it's because it still ends up becoming a kind of of uh, uh, hard science. It's speculative, certainly, but it plays out in a world where a guy threw a big enough pile of money at scientists and said, "Go play," and they said, "Well, all right." <laughs> you know it. It. And this is this is a side a sideline to all of that going off on a tangent for a moment. But but you look at what's going on now, for example, with you know all of these vaccines, the pandemic, and everything else. And you know there's there's the question of just how much we want to listen to somebody like a Bill Gates, for example, who is you know he's he. he you know, started a computer company in his garage. He doesn't know, you know, word one about medicine. And yet here he is, you know, all hands, all fingers in the pie to, to, you know, to help with this kind of thing. And you get, you know, the questions of scientists and, and peer reviewed documents and all of these other studies and all of that. You know, climate science is, is another one where people are, are questioning, okay, you're saying X because you get money from people who pay you to say X. So now there's not not saying it happens all the time, but there are these questions now of, and and this is nothing new. But when you have a scientist, and like what you're talking about, you have this this you know this pile of money that's thrown at people, and you, you know. You have Malcolm saying, you know, just because you can do a thing doesn't necessarily mean you, you should do the thing. Right, right. But if I give you a pile of money and you go do the thing, whether it's questionable ethics or not, whether it's honest or not, you're getting all of this money to do a certain thing with a certain goal. Sure. And the, the, you know, the, the, that, that even would be an interesting story to see just how science can get compromised by – Sure. Money. The problem Greed. for most of those arguments is that if you know anything about the budgets most of these scientists are working with, nobody's throwing large sums of money at them. It seems like large it can seem like a large sum of money to a person with like a uh, you know, forty thousand dollar a year income, but science costs a lot of yeah. money to do. So sometimes when you see them throwing large sums of money, that money's going out the door super fast. Oh, sure. People aren't making profits off this stuff. Well, and so, nobody's noticed and, anything and, about the profit. You know, well, the no, profit, even you know, just the, the ethics of it, you know, this is this definitely, there's, this is a question that you should be concerned about in any event. Sure. Um, somebody like Bill Gates, of course, Bill, Bill Gates is not an expert on science. Bill Gates surrounds him, you know, pays people to be experts for him. He can do that because he's got a obscene amount of money, yeah. uh, and you know, and he can and he can go to a scientist or a doctor and say, "Tell me the thing." And the doctor, the scientist, here is the thing, and he goes, "Okay, thanks." And he goes and talks to another one, right? So, in a perfect world, he said, "Ha ha!" Uh-huh. Uh, everyone who does that, of course, is going to go and take the information from the scientist and the doctor. And then turn around and use that information for the benefit of people around them. That's but assuming that that's assuming that the doctor tells him what he needs to know, not what he wants to hear. Well, and I think that that's an important thing to consider because when you look at 
the really interesting science fiction stories where that happens, mm -hmm. where someone is told what they want to hear. Jurassic Park's an example of this. Yeah. Um, you know, nobody, again, no one said, don't do the thing because it doesn't matter how cool the science is. The end result is not a controllable thing. It's the gray goo problem, right? Yeah. We're going to build these things that can replicate and, and they can build, they can build a city for us because they're little tiny machines building cities. But how do you shut them off? Uh, the the Cylons in the Battlestar Galactica reboot. Right. You know, humans so bu humans built you know, the Cylons. Cylons gained consciousness or whatever it is that you want to say in there. And suddenly they're rebelling and killing everybody. And and, and again, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but uh, they're, they're, some of these questions come up in, uh, in Project Hail Mary because scienti a scientist is put in a position where in order to do this mm. important thing, a choice has to be made that once you make that choice, you don't know what the results are really going to be. Yeah. But it's in the title. Hail Mary. It literally is the, we're making, you know, we're, we're, we're risking everything. And there's consequences to risking everything no matter whenever you do that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's really cool stories you can tell here. Yeah. I've been uh, really fascinated with the, with the concept, with the, with the, uh, the concepts that are introduced in this, in, in, in unfettered journey, because this question of, you know, consciousness mm -hmm. and, and the, and his approach to it is very hard science fiction right now. It's, you know, there's, there's robots and there's artificial intelligence, but it's done, He's extrapolating forward. Okay, well, right. here's where we are now. Where are we going to be in ten years, fifteen years, fifty years, or wherever? And from that, he's 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 adapting the technology forward. But the core, the crux of the story, is the question of consciousness with regard to AI. And and I'm I'm interested to see how he's how he's going to go through. I think I'm in. I've, I've done. I've gone through like the first third of the book. I'm almost halfway through. Um, so, see one yeah. of the one of the great hard science fiction stories. I really want to see turned into a film, and it's I I I'm giving up hope. I really am. I don't <laughs> ever think we're going to get a rendezvous with rendezvous Rama. Rendezvous with Rama. Yeah, I want that so bad because the, in many ways that is, I think, almost the. Not, it's not the pinnacle, but it's it's up there mm -hmm. with hard science fiction first contact story because and of course we had that that uh, object that came through the system that people was up there like what is that yes uh, what did they call it so or did they call it Ouroboros or something like that the that yeah, asteroid yeah, just, thing that passed and through? and the and. You know, Morgan Freeman really wanted to make this movie, and it was just like, "Come on, guys! I think give he Morgan still does. Freeman what he wants." <laughs> I think um, he still does want to make it. Well, I think I'm sure he does. Uh, whether or not, you know, everyone. It's, the problem with Rendezvous with Rama, as much as I love the book, mm -hmm. is that it is so rooted in science that the ending, Hollywood, 
would get to the end of that movie, <laughs> that script, and go, but yeah, where's the rest of it? And you go, this is how the story ends. And they go, aren't there sequels? Yeah, we don't talk about the sequels. We're talking about this movie right now. <laughs> this well, one right now. It's just like 2001. You know, there, there's, there's other, you know, you have 2010 and you have, uh, you know, the other ones, but. And 2010 is in many ways a harder science fiction movie than 2001 is. Uh, because it's literally, you know, 2000, you look at, you look at the technology in, in 2001 and then you look at the technology of 2010 mm-hmm. in the world we were living in when that movie came out. Yeah. And you're like, I recognize that. Which was really weird. <laughs> <laughs> we realized that the future was not going to get as far away. And yet it still stayed far away. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's, it's one of the problems with science fiction is that a hundred years from now, met, whoa, 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 hang on. <laughs> well, and that's, I think that's one of the, one of the, one of the challenges for near future stories anymore is that technology is advancing so, so far and so much in real time in the real world that it's hard to project forward five, ten years because we keep missing it because technology is advancing further past where, where we can project. It's it's well, easier to do a hundred years out or a thousand years out than it is to do ten years out. Right. The the problem is is that we're still making the kind of stories a hundred years out or a thousand years out, where if you look at the progression of technology, mm-hmm. it either has to stagnate at some point. Um, because if you look at the twentieth century and the first part of the twenty first century and then tack on another 500 years, what does the technology look like? Yeah. If you, for us to recognize it, you kind of have to dumb it down because if, if it continues on the way that it's going, 500 years from now, we're not going to recognize what that is. We're not going to see, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're not going to have the reference point because it's so far beyond us just no, by the exponential. And unless it plateaus. Pay, yeah, you'll be able to pay your bills by blinking. Well, you know, the, the, and, this, and this becomes the question that, that you see in a lot of science fiction is we have all this technology. How much of it becomes part of our physical world. I mean, how much do we end up being cyborgs? How much does the stuff gets wired into us? Well, the other, the other, the other, the flip side of that is you look at how many, how many people now are complaining about social media, for example, and big tech and all of that. And this growing sentiment that we need to walk away from Facebook and Twitter and all of that. So maybe 10 years down the road, 50 years down the road, there's a total rejection of technology. Maybe there's a regression at some point where we sit there and go, you know what? The Luddites kind of had it right. Let's try that for a while. You know? Well, and, I, and, I think the, the, the important part is to find a balance. Yeah. Um, we do not want the Butlerian Jihad anytime soon. <laughs> um, nor, nor do, I mean, the, the fact is, is that, of course, obviously technology has so many benefits for us, um, the interconnectedness of the internet has just, I mean, there's so many upsides to it. 
it's just balancing it out with the bad sides. Yeah. I think that you you run into the real question of, and again, this is something that shows up in hard science fiction and speculative science, what it means to be human, what it means to be, um, what it means to not lose yourself. I had a friend uh, back in my, my Borders books days who was a manager. We had two stores down in Wichita, Kansas. Mine was on the east side, other stores on the west side of town. And this was, you know, 2000, no, 90, gosh, somewhere around 2001, 2002. Okay. And so The Sims was huge. Oh. It's still yes. huge, right? Yes. But it's still, I mean, it's, it's still around. It's, it's very yep. popular still even so, but it was really big. Because it had just, you know, it was it was relatively new, and 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 she went down the rabbit hole. It ate up her life. Her mm-hmm. virtual life was so engaging and so interesting to her that she neglected her pers- her real life. It cost her her job. It cost her her relationship. It cost her. I mean, I. From what I understand, she was getting help at the end. The last time I was I was uh, in, in hearing about what was going on with her, but and that's that's with uh, the Sims. Yeah, well, Animal Crossing I think would be the modern day equivalent. There's there's that, but once you once you work in things like the virtual reality world, you work in you know ha- having the kind of suits that you get in Ready Player One where you feel. That you've got the tactile sensation, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, we jo- you can joke about the old movie smell-o-vision stuff, <laughs> but once, once, well, once the sense of smell gets replicated, yeah. taste is so close, and once you've got that, how much can you have someone who is plugged in? And never unplugs. Yeah, because at that point, then you just get an IV for your nutrition bag, and you're all set to go. Maybe a catheter. And you know that there are people who would do that. Yep. Because that's because we're. And we, we saw and we saw something similar in Wall-E. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's there's risks to this sort of thing, and some stuff you some stuff in the future you can sit there and go, no, flying cars are a really <laughs> bad idea. Because have you seen how people drive yeah. on the ground? But we're getting <laughs> flying men. The British are coming. The, the British about are coming. flying men is that if one <laughs> falls on you, it's just one person falling on you as opposed yeah. to a ton or two tons or however much it costs, however much it weighs to make what car fly. Um, folks, they I did, used to drive for a see, living up and down I-35 that runs right through Kansas City, and I have news. I am never going outdoors again if we get flying cars. <laughs> I saw one. I said there was a safe. there was an expo in Japan. I think they just showed off one. That's a flying car. It's an actual oh. flying car. Yeah, it's coming. They, they're coming. They're coming. They're coming. They're coming. I'm my my greatest hope is that I I live long enough to die before they're everywhere. 
Because I mean, because really, you know, I mean, again, we come back to driverless cars, right? We yeah. see those and we see those in science fiction films. The technology is a neat idea, and in theory, in theory, they should be safer than human drivers because human drivers fall asleep, they yeah. get sick, they have heart attacks, they aren't paying attention, they're looking at their cell phone, they're doing whatever it is. But the reality that we've seen so far is that we're not there yet. Right. The technology is cool. The technology has potential. And it's really strong potential. But right now, um, it's still dangerous. And while you accept a certain amount of danger when you get in a car or you get in a plane or on a mm. train or on a boat, you, 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 you are assuming a certain amount of risk. You just know you are. I mean, you you know, that's the world. But if you're on that plane or that train or that boat, are you having green eggs and ham? That's the ultimate well, question. I, I think it's important that one keeps one cul one's culinary options open <laughs> because, you know, yeah. just, be, just because a food is not a color you're familiar with doesn't mean right. it's not good. And on that so, note... <laughs> uh, we will head out. How, how about how about we do this? We I think I think this is an interesting topic to circle back to at some point. This oh, yeah. idea of future tech, and mm -hmm. you know where is the flying car? And you know we look at the flying car and the jetpack and all of those all of those things where we're just on the cusp. Maybe we ought to take a look at that at some point and, and talk oh, about. Yeah. And uh, there's talk there's about a lot that. of there's a lot of science fiction that's happened in our lifetime. Yeah. Of what people thought was like, you know, the future. The future is now. <clears throat> that, future. that could be our topic. The future is Tomorrow now. is yesterday. Yes. All right. So that's going to do it for us tonight. Thanks very much, everybody, in the chat. I see Mazerus. I see Orville Nation. I see Robert, Mindy. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for being Good here. You, you can always leave us a comment, even if it's not uh, live. You can leave us a comment or you can send us an email live from the bunker. Uh, no, not this is not live from the bunker. H2O at sci-fi for me.com. I'm in the habit of saying live from the bunker all the time. <coughs> H2O at sci-fi for me.com. I mean, you can send one to live from the, live from the bunker. It'll still sure, get here. But this show, H2O at sci-fi for me.com. Tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central, we will have the latest Star Wars news on Salacious Crumbs. Uh, I think we're going to let Mrs. Boss host tomorrow night instead of me. And then on Thursday, 9 p.m. Eastern, we will have a new discussion in the Ranker Pit. I think we'll be talking uh, again about the Bad Batch and maybe a few other rumors that are floating around. So you want to stick around for that. Um, Mazerus mentioned the fact that the notifications are not going out. YouTube up to their old shenanigans. Which is why we try to hold to a schedule. So on all of our social media, at the top, the header is our is our programming schedule. So you can see all of the different times where all of our different shows show up. So appointment television, uh, it's you know what's what's old is new again, I guess. So uh, that that way you have a handy guide and a reference to know when we put our shows out and. Uh, when we have updates on Comic-Cons, that goes out at about 7.30 Eastern whenever we have those. Mindy is working on that list. Wait, Jason, so, did you invent TV Guide? TV Guide? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. It's like, did you know that they can do podcasts live now? <laughs> I think we'll call it radio. <laughs> I Well, see, and, and it's funny because, you know, you look at all of these YouTube channels that have just blown up and they've taken off and, and various different topics, not just, not just the genre side of things, sure, of course. comics mm-hmm. or video games. But the really popular ones have got hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And you look at the schedules for when all of these all of these channels go live. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, you know, this is such a wide open landscape. It would be so helpful to have a TV guide for YouTube channels. But can you imagine how big that would be? How how tiny how tiny this the cells in the row would be to just go through all of it? It's, Crazy. Well, there'd, there'd be no room for the crossword. There'd be I, no room. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for us tonight. Thanks very much for being here, everyone. And we will be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel for another H2O podcast. Good night. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. 